I'm rowing strength coach Will Ruth, and you're listening to the Strength Coach Roundtable podcast on Row Perfect UK's Rowing Chat Network. Fellow rowing strength coaches Blake Gourlay and Joe DeLeo and I started this project in February of 2015 as a way to improve coach education on strength training and rowing. We believe in a rigorous, evidence-based approach to strength training as a means to both improve rowing performance as well as reduce the risk of injury. And through this podcast, we hope to share with you how you can put sound principles of sports-specific strength training to work for you too. This episode is a highlight reel containing 10 to 15-minute excerpts from our first six episodes to give you a sense of what we're all about. If you like this, please make sure to listen to the rest of the episodes, all available for free on SoundCloud, YouTube, and iTunes through Row Perfect UK's Rowing Chat channel. We also post show notes containing links to more information and demonstrations on Row Perfect UK's blog, so check those out too if you're interested. Finally, Blake, Joe, and I also have a Facebook group for discussion of strength training and rowing that we would love to have you join. It is linked through Row Perfect UK's Facebook and can be found at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash strength coach roundtable. And now, on to the podcast. Episode one was a broad overview of multiple topics, and in this five-minute excerpt, we share our thoughts on what makes an excellent warm-up for rowers for rowing practice as well as strength training. For my rowers, it has to start with some sort of uh, low-impact aerobic exercise to increase core temperature, basically just get moving for about three to five minutes. Uh, Usually try to avoid ergame because it's hard to get them to truly do that low-impact, but the stationary bike or jogging or jump rope or really whatever's kind of available to you is great. Um, Dynamic or static stretches for the hip flexors. Um, Activate the glutes. And if there are postural problems, also probably work on some mid or upper back activation. Uh, And it's really easy to do a lot of this with bands and body weight. So the main points are increase core temperature first because warm muscles are less likely to get injured than cold muscles. Uh, and then work on some of the specific hip areas uh, to help with rowing performance. Blake, is there any particular difference from that warm-up from being on the water? Um, I'm typically going to follow the same warm-up for strength training and rowing. Um, With rowers specifically, I'm going to target what they need. Um, So for example, I think rowers need three big things. I think they need mobility, stability, and strength. Um, And with the proper warm-up, I think you address all three issues. Um, To be more specific, they they need hip, T-spine, and ankle function. Uh, They need mobility there. If that's not working, there's going to be issues. Um, And then they need stability, reflexive core stability. And then you need to add strength to it so that it's it's more likely to to hang around. and so that you can tolerate a greater load without getting injured. Um, So that's always my goal, whether we're heading into the weight room or onto the water. Talk about T-spine. What does that mean? Uh, So T-spine is the thoracic spine, and it's basically we have the cervical spine, which is the neck. Uh, We have the thoracic spine, which is mid-back, and then we have the lumbar spine, which is low-back. And basically the body's laid out in a way that it alternates mobility and stability. And what we want is we want the T-spine to be mobile so that the low back doesn't take the brunt um, of the load. That's very, very clear. So moving on to the, you've mentioned two different sorts of stretching, dynamic and static. Now, obviously one is when you're moving and one is when you're stationary, but 
how do you do these and when do you do one versus the other and why? So, Joe, do you want to kick off on the how to do dynamic versus static? Sure. Um, I usually do the dynamic uh, after the, the cardio. So, um, as Will and Blake said, you know, warm up with some cardiovascular exercise and then I would move into some what I call movement prep, um, targeting ankles, hips, and T-spine. Um, now, if I'm working with a sweep rower compared to, you know, a sculler, um, I take a look at, you know, for example, a sweep rower, take a look at what side they're rowing and try to make sure that we do some, some rotational um, uh, mobility work for the T-spine and try to bring balance to the left and right side uh, just because if they're spending so much time going to, to one side, um, you know, you want to make sure that they have that range of motion on the other side as well. And then in terms of the static um, stretches, really isolate and focus on the, you know, the hip flexors um, because those tend to be short and tight for, for most uh, rowers because we're sitting down so much. Uh, and I'll make sure to do those at the end of the training session as well. After episode one, we started doing deep dives into one focused subject rather than trying to cover a dozen different topics in one episode. In episode two, we talked about our best strategies for strength training for rowing performance. In this eight-minute segment, we discuss our top tips for getting strength training to carry over to on-water or on-erg rowing performance. We all know that you know the, the strongest person isn't always the fastest person in the boat. You could get a 800-pound squat you know, or a powerlifter who could squat 800 pounds, but they wouldn't necessarily be able to do uh, a 2K any faster. So the next question I want to talk about is just what are your tips for getting what strength coaches refer to as carryover? So how, how can we make training in the weight room apply as closely as possible to training on the erg uh, or on the water? What can we do to make sure that all of our work in the weight room transfers over really well to uh, faster boats? Yeah, um... I think I, I don't look at weightlifting as as just like going in the weight room lifting weights and you know that's it. I I actually look at it as the extension of of a practice. Um, so I approach every lift with like a, another opportunity to say the same thing in a different way in a different environment. Um, and and I think that that's typically really understated. Um, but for example, like. When, when I coach the deadlift, um, and I've done this with adults, with high school, and with college athletes, <clears throat> and they all display the same issues that they display in the boat and the deadlift. Um, and it's a really good opportunity to just get hands-on with them and, and say it in a different way. And like in the deadlift, you can, you can teach acceleration. Uh, you can teach getting connected with locking that blade in the water before you stand up. Um, you know, you can teach posture, how to, how to pick up weight with a su supported spine, uh, which is also really underrated. And hanging on arms, keeping the shoulders relaxed. There's just, there's so many ways that you can take it. Um, and to, to reference Dan John again, he, he talks about gaps and, and standards and, I think it's, I think a lot of rowers are very, very endurance oriented, and I think a lot of them have a gap in terms of their strength. 
Um, so I, I mean, in my opinion, strength is is the foundation for endurance. Strength is the foundation for power. Um, and if you if you want to get better, if you want to be able to to apply a little bit more power to each and every stroke, if you want to go a little bit longer, filling that that strength gap is actually going to make you quite a bit stronger. So I think a lot of people talk about like sports specific exercise and all that, and that's not necessarily the way to do it. If if you just teach them to to move well, uh, to understand how it connects to the sport, and to like really give them a solid foundation of strength, that will translate to the boat. Are there any particular uh, tips or cues or anything that you found that that get through to a lot of athletes in terms of how what they're doing in the weight room applies to the boat? Um, on the deadlift recently. Um, I've been actually on every lift. I've been using rate recently, and that actually works really, really well. <laughs> um, so if you want someone to do something more controlled, you can tell them to to try to do it at a rate 16. Um, Interesting. Uh, on the deadlift for for like locking that blade in into the water before you drive, like you don't want to row that blade in. You want to lock on and really find your legs from the beginning. Um, I really like the deadlift for that because you can kind of you can hear the click in the bar before you, you pick it up. You want to take that click out, find a connection, and then you want to apply the legs on it. Um, that's a big one for me. Um, and then if you if you want to, you can take it even farther and you can um, just have them treat it like the boat, like find a connection, accelerate as you stand up. Um, and that, that really clicks with rowers. I like that too, and um, with the deadlift, I'll often refer to it as like being at you know, half slide on the, you know, first starting stroke. So same kind of thing. Like you're not rowing it in, you're finding that connection, burning the blade and then going from there. Yeah. Joe, you got anything here? I do. Um, I, I think uh, Blake just touched on some great points and, and from the deadlift. And one of the things I think all three of us do a great job of is is using the environment in the, in the gym when you're strength training to not only enhance the, the athlete's strength, um, but really improve their spatial awareness, um, how they're moving, and their proprioception, creating that, that sensory-rich environment. Um, and you know, regardless of what exercising they're doing at that particular given moment, the, the ability to be that much more aware and develop that neuromuscular connection, that mind-body connection, that's what's going to cross over into any sport, rowing, running, you know, triathlon. Um, but specific exercises carrying over for rowing, there's a couple that really come to mind. Um, I think it's super critical um, to have the ability to create uh, what Dr. Stuart McGill refers to as super stiffness in the torso. Um, rowers are under an incredible amount of load, um, especially around the, the low back. Um, you're, you're hinging through the hips. There's a lot of stress on the low back as well as uh, a rotational component to the, to the rowing stroke in the boat, especially um, on the sweep side of things. So uh, bottoms up kettlebell carry, asymmetrical just on one side, uh, is great. It forces you to really crush grip the handle. Uh, you get the lat engagement as well as the QL um, you know, Dr. McGill really really cites that as something that carries over well. Uh, he did that a lot with uh, strongman athletes um, who would be 
uh, carrying a super yoke. So just basically an apparatus that had a ton of weight uh, loaded on it and they'd be carrying um, hundreds of pounds for, for distance. They found they got greater uh, EMG muscle activation using an asymmetrical load than with a symmetrical load. Um, so for a, for a sport such as rowing, I think that's a great one that has a lot of carryover. Right on. Um, yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you guys have said. I think one of the um, main ways that I like to get carryover is through the block periodization system. I know I've explained this in, in other podcasts, but the one of the ideas of that is exercise selection and getting more specific the closer to whatever your competitive season is. So with the college guys, we're basing it all off of, you know, the national regatta uh, in May. But that can change whether you're, you know, more focused on head of the Charles or whatever it is, or if you're a southern hemisphere rower. Um, in the block periodization system, you start off in the in the furthest away season, which for us is summer, with the greatest amount of variety. So they all have them doing, you know, three different kinds of squats, uh, a couple different kinds of deadlifts, um, let them mix it up with different kinds of presses. We've got a large amount of variety, build a really big base of strength. Then the closer we get to the competitive season, the more refined and the more specific that gets. Uh, Blake, I liked what you said as far as like not getting too specific. I think we've all we've all known or we've all maybe been. I know I was uh, <laughs> that guy doing you know 200 rep uh, leg press sets because well you do 200 strokes in a 2K so let's just load that up with uh, two, 200 reps and that'll carry over. Um, but my whole kind of idea is that you know just like you said, build it strong and then let the endurance uh, come on downstream from that. Um, so you get specific, not overly specific, but at least in terms of exercise selection, like that's when I'll start incorporating more of uh, the Penlay row, kind of uh, very similar to the stroke rowing exercises. The other side of the coin is strength training for injury prevention, and that's what we focused on in episode three. In this 13-minute excerpt, Blake shares with us the story of his career-ending back injury and how he uses that experience to motivate and inform his coaching practices now as a rowing and rowing strength coach. The thing that uh, we said we were going to talk about is uh, Blake's back injury. Um, so, Blake, I know we've talked off-air about this, but you want to tell us your uh, personal story with the back injury? So I rode, I rode four years in high school, started my freshman year, um, ended up getting, getting recruited to college, and... Uh, my first year, first semester at college, um, I, I didn't have any back issues, or at least that I knew. Um, and my coach decided to switch sides to give me more opportunities to, to get in the top boat. Um, and there was just there was just one day where my my low back was just on fire and um, a ton of pain and it felt similar to what I'd felt before in terms of like, it just felt like a really hard workout and I'm sure all rowers have felt where their, their backs just burnt from a, a long time on the water. Um, and that's what I thought it was. And then it, it just, it stayed like that. Um, and it hurt in everything I did. Like I, I couldn't lay down without pain. I couldn't, I couldn't walk. I couldn't sit. Like every single thing I did was, was painful. Um, <clears throat> And so I rested for a while and eventually it went away and I, I was really excited and uh, my coach eased me back into it and he said, you know, why don't you, why don't you try warming up on the erg? Um, 
and I ended up having to crawl off the erg <laughs> after that, and it, it came back. And um, long story short, I basically spent three months um, going to different doctors, and um, they eventually found out that I had two herniated discs, discs, and I had uh, uh, stress fractures on both sides of my uh, one of my vertebrae, so it could actually slip out of alignment. Um, Brutal. And, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, un unfortunately, it's something you live with, uh, and I've learned how to manage it. Um, but it is, it is what made me, you know, so passionate about this, and it, it's the reason why I'm trying to make uh, people learn from my mistakes. And uh, you know, I wish there was more available when I was rowing. Uh, like, I didn't even know what a foam roller was. Like, I didn't, I didn't know what good strength training was. Um, I didn't know about recovery. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's really important to do what we can and, and use what we've learned to, to make sure we can stop as much as we can from happening. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's the Tommy John injury of baseball. It's, you know, the ACL tear of football. Like, every sport kind of has the, the injury that, that they're notorious for. Um, but I think that we just see it in rowing so much, particularly with, like, the tall, promising high school recruit kind of guy go, goes to college and something like that happens. I mean, did, did you ever figure out why it was or what the, what the root cause was, or was it just the switching sides combined with other factors? Uh, I mean, now that I know more than I, I did, my, my best guess would be, you know, my body wasn't prepared for that. I didn't have the mobility to, um, to rotate to the right as opposed to the left. Um, and I, I don't, I don't think I had the strength for it. Um, I also looked at some of, some of the older pictures of me rowing, and you know, I, I rode with a, a spine that was very C-shaped. Um, and if you look at all, basically all back injury research, um, it says you know flexion, uh, so bending forward, bending sideways, and rotating, which is basically the catch position. <laughs> they all say that that's the most dangerous position to be in. Um, so eventually, like, there's going to be a breakdown unless you do what you can to minimize that stress. And so, at what point in your career did you come around to strength training? Um, I actually started personal training just kind of as like a side gig to coaching, just like a, a stepping stone along the way. Um, and then I ran into you know Mike Boyle and um, some other mentors that that kind of showed me that you can do a lot more with strength training than than I ever thought. And so now, uh, what in particular do you do with your athletes to kind of try to prevent it from happening again? Yeah, so a big thing for me is, is hip function, so making sure they have mobility in the hips, which means they'll, they'll use their lumbar spine less, um, making sure they have strength in the hips, um, making sure they have T-spine mobility, uh, so they're they're taking stress off the lumbar spine as they, they rotate and, and side bend. Um, and then really strengthening the core to, to resist motion as opposed to produce motion. That's interesting. What, what kind of exercises uh, for that last category in particular? So Anti-rotation holds, and then I have uh, kind of different variations of that. Um, you know, you, you can do you know, basic planks, side planks, um, and then you can do different different carries as well. Cool. We'll make sure to put up um, links in the recap of this to some of those. 
as I'm sure that uh, some of our listeners are interested in preventing the injury as well uh, for themselves. Um, yeah, I don't know. Joe, do you have any questions there? Uh, I don't have any questions. Uh, I just wanted to say thanks to Blake for, for sharing and um, his story and background and with, the, with the injury and perspective and stuff. I was just curious in terms of um, is there any, you know, what are some of your go-to you know, T-spine and hip mobility uh, exercises that, that you uh, use? It's all, it all kind of progresses, but uh, I, I do this hip flow where I combined uh, a Spider-Man stretch uh, with the world's greatest stretch with a pigeon stretch. Um, so that, that would be my go-to for, for loosening up the hips. Um, I also uh, do a few other things that are pretty hard to explain, but it's, it's in the FRC world and um, basically doing controlled um, circles with the hip joint. Almost like manual therapy, like someone's walking you through those, or are you doing them under your own power? No, you're doing them under your own power. Uh, it's hard to explain. We'd have to show you a video of that. Are you, are you shooting more videos yet? Yeah, I just need. I have a bunch of them done. I just need to get around to actually editing them. All right. Well, tweet <laughs> tweet at Blake Gorley if you wanted to get on his horse and start doing that. Then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I didn't touch on T spine. Um, T spine. I mean, you can do a basic roll over the the roller. Um, you can you can use a peanut. So two tennis balls uh, taped together. Um, I like rib grabs. Um, where you kind of lay on your back and you use your breath and you work on rotating the opposite shoulder to the ground, um, uh, incorporating rotation in, in different stretches. That's where I get most of it. I think it's interesting how you came back to rest and that so many rowers are so reluctant to take time off when they're injured. Uh, I mean, it's not only important to keep you healthy, but once you are injured, sometimes you just need to take two or three or however many weeks off that it takes to get you healthy again. Um, I don't know. I mean, did you feel rushed at all in your, in your path back? Because that's, that's definitely something I see a lot. I didn't feel rushed. And one, one of the things I didn't touch on, though, was like the mental side of, of being injured. Um, and it had nothing to do with my coaches. It had nothing to do with my teammates. But I, I felt like I was letting them down. Um, and that was one of the harder parts. Um, I don't feel like my coach rushed me back to, you know, to row as fast as I could. Um, I don't, I don't feel like he like put me in danger's way by, you know, putting me back in the boat, like, and saying to go full pressure. And he didn't do that, which was, which was great. Um, but obviously like when you're in a team sport for that long, like you, you feel like you're letting everyone else down. So you're kind of rushing yourself. Yeah, I think it's often not the coach that's pushing the athlete as much as it is the athlete pushing themselves uh, or disguising when they're injured or saying they're fine when they're not or something else like that. It's really hard you know, when you're a coach and you've got 30-plus rowers out there. You can't possibly be monitoring how each and every one of them accurately feels. Um, and it's, it's a hard sell to get the athlete to, to not feel uh, like you felt. Yeah, and I do feel like you know, whether or not it really doesn't matter how much you know, as long as you like make it a priority to to keep athletes healthy and you know take steps to do whatever you know at that point in time. Um, you're only going to learn from it. You're only going to get better, and your team's only going to be healthier. Um, but especially working with younger kids, so I work 
mostly with high school kids. Uh, I, I kind of feel a responsibility to, to look after them and to think about their future um, because when you're in that position and you're young and you're strong, like you, you think you're invincible uh, and you do not think about your future. So if, if no one else thinks about it, uh, like there's no one thinking about your future and then you could have a career-ending career ending injury that's, that might affect you the rest of your life. Besides the, the mobility, is there any other you know, tips or prevention strategies um, athletes should be aware of uh, specifically, specifically around low back? To be honest, I think, I think the biggest thing for everyone, uh, for all injuries, is really stepping back and looking at the bigger picture and um, making sure you're looking at everyone in, as an individual. So, like, if, if you don't have assessments in place, that's fine. Um, if, if you want to do it at the most simple level, every single day just go around and ask every single one of your athletes, how are you today? How are you feeling? Are you sore? Oh, you're sore? Where are you sore? Um, and, you know, at first they think it's really weird. <laughs> and at first they won't really tell you anything. Um, but eventually they'll realize you care and you're actually trying to see what's going on with them. And, you know, sometimes they'll have something that you can prevent uh, that day because you found it early. You know, maybe someone's left side of their back started hurting. Um, you know, give them a day off, give them, give them some, uh, some rolling and stretching to do, um, target that area. Um, and it might not be a problem in the future, but if you let it go on for too long, um, I think that's where it becomes a problem. Yeah. I remembered what I was going to ask, which was what are some of those red flags that you look for, uh, in terms of like the low back injury specifically? Um, Typically, when they, they point at their low back and it's, it's basically like um, one side or the other and it's, and it's on the bone as opposed to, you know, both sides and on the muscles, uh, you know, because a lot of times people are, people are going to be sore on the erectors and the muscles that, that run along your low back. Um, a lot of times you'll be sore because you're using them, especially when you're building into it. Um, but when it's asymmetrical um, and when it's more towards the bone, um, and when it's something that's that's kind of lasting um, and and less muscular, that's concerning to me. Good point. Yeah, the lasting thing is big because uh, with a lot of the low back soreness or injuries that I see, the the difference between the two is that you can kind of stretch and massage soreness away, but the injury tends to it's either a very temporary relief. Uh, or it's not a relief at all, and then that's that's kind of when I start to get concerned. You can only improve as much as you can recover from training, and we focused our fourth episode on tips to improve your own recovery between rowing and strength training sessions. In this eight-minute segment, we share our top tips for what you can start doing right now for free from home to start recovering better. And I think a lot of times people just don't realize how much they can impact their recovery and they don't really know that they have options. Um, and just knowing that, you know, if, if I do this and once you find your recovery, that, that strategy that works for you, you know, if I do this, I perform better, I feel better. Um, once you take control and ownership, um, it helps you progress quite a bit faster. Uh, and I think with, with younger athletes, it sounds like we, 
we all work with younger athletes. Um, like they have no idea. Like I, I knew nothing about recovery strategies. Um, I thought I just, you know, stopped working out. I thought, I thought that was my recovery strategy. Well, I think even looking at masters athletes too, like there's a lot of room for improvement with, uh, the tools that that people have at their disposal, like the everyday stuff that everybody could be doing. And I think that's actually where I'd rather go with our last with our last few minutes on this. Um, is like, sure, if you've got the money and something like Denver Sports Recovery like around the corner from you, then then maybe that is realistic to be a part of your training. But a lot of us don't, um, and a lot of us can do great recovery stuff, uh, you know, on our own from home. Joe, did you want to add something for that? No, that's great. I was just going to give them a couple actionable items that they could do. Yeah, do it. Um, so, you know, so a big one um, that I do with, with any students or, or clients that are, that are lifting is implementing fast and loose drills, uh, which is something they teach within Strong First. So it's simply, you know, say you're doing some sort of a grind, like a deadlift, like uh, or a get Turkish getup uh, or a ballistic, you know, afterwards, you want to think about, okay, now I've just learned how to contract and tense my muscles purposefully. Now I want to do the opposite. I want to learn how to like really relax. So like visualize that somebody just sprayed you with a hose and you're going to like try to shake that water off of your arm or off of your leg. And you're trying to get the muscle to relax so much that it just, you know, it's like wringing water out of a towel. And getting athletes to kind of have that awareness, like, okay, yeah, I can go really hard and I can learn how to tense up my muscles, but equally important is learning how to like relax. Um, you know, that's, that's super important. It's two sides of the performance coin, tension yeah, and relaxation. There's a sports psych technique there too, called the progressive muscle relaxation, where it basically walks you through like a guided tour of, uh, trying to relax each muscle under conscious control. It's amazing how much just, constant tension you're carrying in all of your muscles until you really focus on like contracting and then just getting to that relaxation point like you're talking about and that's something you can do you know there 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 are scripts for it on youtube that will walk you through uh progressive muscle relaxation and that's definitely a restorative uh thing that could be added into a bedtime ritual um or it could be done yeah in between in between sets or or whatever and i, I think if you if you look at all forms of recovery strategies all they're doing is trying to get your nervous system to relax. So like you're, you're hyped up, you're really stressed out. All these strategies do is try to get you to relax. So, um, that drill obviously fits that. Um, like Joe mentioned earlier, breathing, uh, is going to get a lot of people to relax, um, and really working on and learning how to breathe correctly. Um, you know, the hot shower, uh, sounds like it didn't work for Will, but, um, hot shower tends to, to uh, promote relaxation of the nervous system. Foam rolling uh, tends to promote relaxation. Um, really, really cheap. Oh, it doesn't need to be cheap. You can get a nice massage, but uh, most, people can't, <laughs> most people can't afford a nice massage, but you can go and get like those $15, $20 massages. And, you know, maybe it's not a fantastic massage, but there's a healing effect of, of human contact. And there's also just like the stress release of just spending an hour taking care of yourself yeah the uh the hot shower didn't work for me but the uh hot epsom salt bath definitely did um that's something else that if you 
play or if you if you play or do a hard sport like rowing is and you're wearing a lot of layers or you're out there in the warm weather uh, like Blake down in California um, you're gonna be sweating a lot and magnesium is a water soluble um, mineral and you sweat that right out so if you do something like an Epsom salt bath or supplementation of, of zinc and magnesium in particular that can really help recovery as well and then it's also relaxing and it's self-care and it's recovery and and you know it's easy to see how all of these kind of start to come together um, and then you realize how powerful just sticking to each one of those is going to be. Hey, do either of you guys use um, uh, like contrast baths or cold water immersion or ice baths in this? Yeah, I've used uh, contrast uh, showers. Um, I haven't done like a full uh, ice bath in a long time, but, uh, but I've done contrast showers. That was actually something that uh, Dr. McGill recommended when I had him on uh, for a podcast. Um, and Tell us what that means or how you'd use them. Sure. So if you're taking a shower, you know, um, you can kind of turn up the, the, the heat, um, the temperature of the water, and then get it really, really cold. And you move back and forth, and that kind of helps to get the muscles relaxed and, um, you know, move any uh, – you know, flush any uh, toxins out of the out of the body um, and help promote you know recovery. Um, so another way to do it is just you know if you have the ability moving from sauna or spa or jacuzzi into like cold water and going back and forth. One thing I think, um, like with the cold water immersion stuff, you're not going to really get it that cold if it's just coming out of a tap. But people generally do like ice baths way too cold. We're like, sure, you can get more. Instagram likes or whatever if it looks super hardcore and you've got chunks of actual glaciers floating in it uh, But that that I think gets to the point where it's actually more traumatic and then you have to recover further from it uh, Because it's so harsh on the body So something like the contrast bath or the contrast shower like you're talking about where you're going from You know hot to like kind of cold, but still obviously well above freezing um, Is gonna be more more restorative and less uh, acutely traumatic yeah, in terms of like uh, water therapy, what I use um, is when we travel to regattas and we're staying at a hotel with a pool, I'll use pool recovery. Um, and a lot of it's, to be honest, a lot of it's mental. A lot of it's just allowing the, the kids to relax and be together and kind of play around in the pool. But uh, we go through like dynamic stretches, um, do a little light swimming. Um, and then we'll end with a little contrast uh, therapy. So we'll have them go in the pool, back to the hot tub, to the pool, back to the hot tub. Um, and we'll always end in the hot tub because I want them to, to be relaxed. And, and most of the time, heat uh, will stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system, which will get you to relax. So um, those are my go-tos. I do use ice baths, but um, I think a lot of it's mental. I'm not sure how much it actually helps with inflammation but I do know that it definitely stimulates the nervous system and it makes you kind of like excited and ready to go again. Um, so I think the time that you use that's important. Um, so I only use ice baths between, like if they have two races in a day, I'll use it between races. Uh, I won't use it if it was like, they're just, they're about ready to go to bed. Like I'm not gonna use it before bedtime because it's actually, <laughs> it's actually gonna, <laughs> it's actually gonna keep them up. <clears throat> No, that's a great point, Blake. I mean, it, it definitely charges you up. Um, 
So making sure it's used at the appropriate time of day is pretty important. Our fifth episode is our longest episode to date, discussing the nitty-gritty details of sports psychology and how you can develop a stronger performance mindset. We had a fantastic guest on this episode, Sarah Hendershot-Lombardi, a former Olympian and current coach and founder of the Rowficient Rowing Education Company. In this 15-minute excerpt, we discuss characteristics of a strong mindset, why it is so important to rowing, and red flags that may indicate a weak mindset. I mean, I would say, first of all, the reason why I think it's important for rowing is obviously because <laughs> rowing is a very difficult sport, right? Um, it takes a lot of pain tolerance and a lot of in and day in and day out grind uh, training in order to really improve and get to where you need to get. So mentally, you need to have, an, have a mindset that's going to be able to help you to improve through those tough situations, but that's also going to help you to push when the going gets tough, when the pain really starts to set in and everything in your head is telling you to stop. Um, and I think really there's two types of a strong uh, psychology in a rower. And there, there's that strong psychology that comes from your training in day in and day out, the kind of person and athlete that can show up and really perform on a day-to-day -day basis and get the necessary training in. But then there's also the athlete that can show up on race day and can get it done when it counts. And I think those are two totally different sets of psychological skills. And uh, you really kind of need both in order to be able to advance your rowing career. There's a quote that I really like that sounds like kind of what you're talking about. That's not, or it's, um, we don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. And that kind of speaks to that, like, not only need to turn it on and perform in competition, but then to also know that you've got this background of strong training that you can apply to it. Yeah, and, I, you know, I definitely think that when you get on the line, when you're sitting on the starting line or you know, you're sitting on the erg and you're getting ready to do a terrible erg test, some of, uh, some of that mind, mindset will come from the experiences that you've had that lead up to that moment and when you've had positive experiences that you can build on and you gain confidence from that definitely makes a big difference so being able to lean on that training mentally but i, I actually also think there's a totally different skill set that it takes to be able to show up and handle pressure um, that that doesn't necessarily have to do with your training uh, you can be an incredible trainer and i've seen so many athletes that are uh, awesome, like really pretty incredible at showing up day in and day out and never losing their intention or losing that um, intensity that's needed to, to be really good at training, but just did not have it when it came to race day. Uh, either they would crumble under pressure or they didn't know how to bring all that training into the moment that really mattered. So I think they're two different sets of skills and, and both are important. You can't really get away without having one or the other. Interesting. Well, I'll look forward to getting into that more as uh, the episode goes on here. Um, Joe, you want to go next on mindset and importance? Yeah. Uh, for me, what, what comes to mind is being able to uh, handle adversity uh, and bounce back from it, uh, both internally. Um, so wh whatever you might be dealing with, you know, on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week, month-to-month, -month, throughout the year kind of basis, and then also externally, um, what can be sometimes going on that's um, outside of your control, whether that's a team dynamic situation or, you know, race type situation. Um, so being able to kind of stay level headed and, um, you know, bounce back from those things. That's uh, that's pretty important. Right on Blake. 
Yeah, I'd say I'd keep it pretty simple. I think a lot of it for the sport of rowing specifically, it's just the ability to to really push into discomfort and and find that next wall and just continue to to break down walls and, and move on to the next one because I mean it's an extremely challenging sport and it never gets easier. Uh, the faster you go, it it stays just as strong, as hard and uh, may even get harder. And um, I think it's all about being able to push into discomfort as opposed to backing away from that discomfort. Um, I think a lot of it in terms of, you know, race strategy is being able to stay relaxed when you need to, not letting kind of someone's walk or, or someone pushing you to really freak you out um, and to kind of lose your strategy and to kind of let your technique fly out the window. Um, and also just being able to crank it up when needed and, and really push through with your teammates. Nice. Um, so I'm going to cheat and take somebody else's definition because uh, there's a coach that I really like named James Leith. Uh, he's the head of leadership and character development at um, IMG Academy. Uh, if you don't know IMG, if you're outside of the U.S. or something, uh, it's basically Hogwarts for athletes. Uh, it's a powerhouse sport development program. You pay tuition and go there, and that's your school, and you prepare for your sporting career and stuff through that. Um, anyway, he wrote a great blog post defining mental toughness. Uh, I'll link it in the show notes here, but uh, his definition is an athlete uh, who's mentally tough is able to access their talent at the highest level they're capable of on a consistent basis, regardless of the situation. Um, yeah, if that's you, a good one. If you can't wrap your head around why that's important in the sport of rowing, then uh, I don't really know what to tell you. But um, what do you guys think of that definition? Because to me, that that kind of hits everything that you guys just talked about in in one swoop. Yeah, to me, that just um, the way that he describes it. That's just saying that it doesn't matter what's going on around you. And you know, I've heard a lot of rowers <laughs> say things like, oh, I just really hope that X, Y, or Z happens on the day of the race day. And really by hoping that things will line up or that the stars are going to magically you know, align and the cosmos will come together for you on your race day, that's, that's leaving a lot for chance. But when you are able to control what you can control and, and bring your best possible self, um, you know, really through any situation, regardless of what's going on around you. Yeah, I think that that does make for a really well-rounded, successful athlete. And I love that point too, because rowing is such a sport of control. Like the other sport that I coach is lacrosse. I coach high school lacrosse and it's utter chaos. It's, you, you never really know, we can't really scout other teams that well because it's high school and we're all over the state. Uh, it, it's total chaos. Rowing, you know it's going to be 2,000 meters, you know who's going to be in your boat, and then you're rowing your race and other people don't really have an effect on you. Uh, as far as your actual race that you're going to row, so uh, I think I think it's a great point that like there shouldn't be any questions when you're when you're there. There shouldn't be anything that you're hoping to happen because it would have yeah. already happened in training. Hope is not a strategy. Uh, you know, you you have to prepare the best that you possibly can, and and then mentally show up on the day and take care of what you can take care of. And I think that would be an interesting topic for us to get into as well. But I I found personally as an athlete, and I've seen a lot of other athletes realize this as well, that as soon as you can get over what is in your control and what is out of contr your control, you are able to then take this next step into into your development as an athlete because you're no longer worrying about things that you literally have no ability to change. Uh, what are some red flags for when you recognize that, that a rower or client does not have a strong 
uh, mindset and and how does that hold them back? Because we had an interesting situation just a few weeks ago. This is an eight week ERG program, and at the end of week four, we had a, a basically a checkup two K test that should have put them. And then they knew about this ahead of time. It wasn't a surprise two K. I hate those. We can get into that later. Um, but it was supposed to put them out ten seconds above their goal split for the program, and it was amazing because these guys were pulling intervals at their 2k split or at, the, at their goal split and had been training around it and training had been going great and then we put them in this 2k test mindset and even though it was supposed to be slower than what their training was a lot of them started to have barriers and blocks and and choked and all sorts of stuff so i i think that a red flag for me and a common pitfall is the thought that you don't need to develop mental skills until you have a problem so a lot of the guys who i talked to that day had this attitude of like oh i don't know that had never happened before like i had never choked before so why would i choke now but the reality is that and joe you mentioned this too like everybody's going to choke at some point everybody's going to blow a 2k test at some point um so everybody should start developing mental skills before that becomes a problem uh and then even if you don't ever choke on a 2k test for some reason beyond that you know life is going to be a lot harder than a 2k test so these uh mental skills are are helpful beyond that sarah do you have any red flags that you watch out for with with anybody you work with well, I would just say that, um, well, one of the biggest red flags is just some an excuse maker, right? So somebody that always has a reason why something didn't work out um, or why today isn't going to be the day. Um, and you see that happen a good amount, you know, around test time or around those moments where a score actually matters. Um, and I think the difference between somebody like that who, who you know, is showing a red flag and, and the other side of it, like an athlete that you – that you want on your team, um, those are the people that are dying for the opportunity to showcase what they have and are just waiting for for the chance to test themselves um, versus this person that's you know really trying to avoid it. And um, so that would be my my biggest red flag that I see. Um, and then the other one is just the, the same sort of thing that I touched on before: is somebody that's really great at training but doesn't know how to show up on the day uh, because. Because if you're if you're not going to be able to get there for race day, then you know that's that's really the point of the sport, right? Is so that you can you can race and you can perform as as well as you possibly can on those days. So those would be my two biggest red flags that I see. Great stuff, Joe. Yeah, I'll jump in. Um, the two that come to mind for me, one is the first one is pacing. Um, so it's it's absolutely critical that you you know how to go hard but at the same time it's equally important that you know how to manage your energy expenditure and you're not you know flying and dying and just crashing at the beginning of you know whether it's a test piece or out on the race course um and you know some of that's going to come with with maturity um and experience and just in getting the meters in over time um but i think that's a that's a that's a big one. And then the second one um, is, you know, the, the days uh, or the pieces or the races that you have where, you know, you may have done everything right leading up to that. Like you got the right amount of rest and nutrition's good and, you know, you, you feel good and you get into the race and your body's not responding the way that you want it to or you thought it would. And learning how to really grind and work through those types of pieces is invaluable um, because 
you need to be able to teach your your body that I can I can get this to respond the way I want it to under pressure in a race type situation, even when I don't feel my best, uh, even when you know I'm down a couple seats and things are not going the way that that I anticipated. Uh, say especially when. Yeah, exactly. Because that's that's the thing. You you have to you have to know how to do that. And there's no like you know course or class or you know video that we can like watch. That is just pure experience. And that really we we doubt a lot of people. Um, you know, working through those you know times in the trenches, um, and and that will teach you a lot. Um, and, and it goes back to the whole point. It's, it's okay. As long as you're, you're learning from it, identifying it, and then implementing a change, changing your behavior, you're, you're going to come out much better in the long term. And so just to go back to the first thing you said, do you think that the pacing and an inability, an inability to pace is a function of the athlete's mental skill set? Uh, I, I, on some level I do, because I think it's a, it's a maturity and a, a developmental thing, right? So like if we were working with a group of like novices, like obviously their ability to, to pace is not going to be, uh, as strong. They just, they just don't have any concept of it. You know, you're, you're trying to teach them to, to go hard and race hard at the beginning. And then, you know, as they're working their way, you know, think of a freshman going through, through their, uh, first year. You know, as they're working their way through that that first year, they're getting more meters under their belt. They're doing more pieces. They they learn that okay, I need to you know kind of measure myself. Like yeah, I'm going to go hard, but I need to spread it out, spread the load out over the entire piece versus I'm just going to front load it and just try to hang on for dear life. Um, so that's you know that's the piece that's not necessarily in the in the programming on the piece of paper that you see on the chalkboard or, or, um, up on the whiteboard that day. And that's, that can be a huge, uh, you know, step towards, towards getting the athletes to develop well. Got it. Blake, anything you want to add here? Yeah. Uh, from my experience as a coach, I feel like the athletes that have negative self-talk, um, and whether they, they're saying it out loud or, or whether it's just how they show with their body language. Um, I think, I think that's the biggest red flag. Um, so it's the kid that kind of like walks around with his head down and always shaking his head and goes into a test in a race, just thinking the worst of, of himself and his potential. Um, that's a huge red flag, but I also feel like we can have the biggest impact on, on kids like that. And in, in terms of not only athletic ability, but also, just changing their mindset throughout life. In our sixth episode, we focused on one of our favorite lifts for rowing performance, the deadlift. This is a 13-minute overview of the deadlift and why it is so beneficial for rowing when done correctly. Actually, I was going to say, you you take uh, the background info on it, Will, because you use the barbell probably more than, uh, than anybody here. All right. Well, that's a good that that's a good point. Actually, that that the deadlift itself can mean a bunch of different things. Um, at its core, I think is the barbell deadlift, and that is just the simple act of taking a bar uh, from the floor um, to hip height. So, I think it's awesome for rowing because it essentially very closely simulates the rowing stroke. Um, 
you have a little bit less compression um, in the deadlift than you do in the rowing stroke, but the basic principles are the same as far as moving a weight, arms straight, torso tight, um, and driving with the legs uh, to transmit that power from the floor through your body to the barbell. Um, I am a big fan of the barbell lift, but um, with a lot of the help of actually you guys over the last year and a bit, um, I've been experimenting with a couple different variations too. So I'm looking forward to talking more about that. Awesome, man. Yeah, that was great. Um, I think the only thing I'd add to that is, um, you know, traditionally uh, the deadlift is a, is a, uh, using the, the sport of powerlifting, uh, one of the three. So included and that's the, the bench pressed and the back squat. And it is a, you know, one rep max attempt. Um, so that's probably, uh, you know, one of the biggest differences between the, the lift and, you know, the sport of rowing, it's a power endurance event versus, a, a, a one rep max attempt. Um, but like you pointed out, tons of carryover in terms of the biomechanics and, uh, force transfer and what we're doing in the rowing stroke. And if you want to come play with us uh, in Strongman, uh, I actually like deadlifting for Strongman a ton more because we get to do stuff like uh, deadlift cars, deadlift frames, um, deadlift for reps. We'll do touch and go. We'll do dead stop. Uh, Strongman really um, embraces the variation of deadlifting. That's awesome, man. Very cool. Very cool. I might post a couple pictures in the, in the recap link just to show people what they're missing and or can look forward to once they're done with rowing. Uh, all right, Blake. Yeah, I mean, to piggyback off of all that, I just think it it puts them in the position that I primarily want uh, most of my rowers. Uh, I, I prefer a much more hip-dominant stroke as opposed to um, kind of more of a squat, uh, although the stroke's kind of a combination of the two. Um, I would prefer that my athletes, you know, feel their glutes and hamstrings quite a bit more than the quads um, and just really be able to find the power um, from their, their back end. And are you talking about in the boat or on the bar in that case where you talk about a more quad dominant stroke or a more hip dominant stroke? Uh, I'm talking about in the boat. Um, and I feel like the, the deadlift teaches, teaches that position. I think that works well for the technique that I'm trying to get to transfer from land to water. So a more hip dominant stroke, you're looking at things like uh, less compression, less heel lift at the catch let's walk us through what a what a more hip dominant stroke looks like compared to a more quad dominant stroke in the boat um basically like more body angle forward um flatter spine um less round in the back um being able to to really kind of hang from the lats and then swing open hard from the hips as opposed to um kind of more like a squat dominant which i feel like is a little bit more traditional Gotcha. Cool. Um, I think in, in rowing, one of the things I was actually talking about with my guys just last week is that uh, we are using a very imprecise language to define very precise movement and that there's always going to be, whether it's through jargon or whether it's just through the inadequacy of language to describe physical movement, always some room for interpretation on what hip dominant versus quad dominant. So um, we'll try, especially since this is an uh, audio presentation, to be to be clear about when we talk about terms like that. Um, any other reasons more that you guys think it's beneficial for rowing? Anything else you want to hit, Joe? Yeah, uh, a couple more um, to just uh, make sure that we're we're driving home. Uh, so besides the 
the emphasis on the hip hinge, uh, use of the posterior chain. Uh, it's an excellent um, lift to slow things down, uh, hence deadlift, bringing the bar off the floor from a dead stop, um, to teach the athlete body awareness, how to root into the floor, um, develop force transfer by pushing down into the floor, um, you know, bracing, creating stiffness through the torso, and then transferring that into the bar. So a lot of the same things that we're trying to do with the feet off the foot stretcher and then the, the hands uh, around the oar handle. Let me add in one thing uh, that we're trying to do with the hands too, is that in a deadlift, there's a little bit of space, just a couple millimeters in between the sleeve of the barbell and the, the hole of the, of the plate where the plate slides over the barbell. Um, and good deadlifters, and I'm, I might have to do a video about this too for the recap if one of you doesn't have it already, but when they start a deadlift, they, it's, it's called taking the slack out of the bar, whereas you drop your hips down into the deadlift position, you pull up with your hands just a little bit, not too much to get the biceps into it, but basically just like exactly the motion at the catch of just getting the blade in the water and then applying pressure with the hips. And if someone doesn't do that, what you'll hear when they deadlift is a hard like clicking noise as the co as the collar slams into the plates, uh, which is wasting uh, force. So that's another great thing that I've I've loved to tie in um, when teaching athletes suspension in the boat and uh, taking the slack out of the bar in the deadlift. That's another. I mean, it was a great point that you made about about connecting pressure through the feet, but tying it into the hands as well. Yeah, I love that you mentioned that. Um, I actually use the exact same line that you said. I said, take the click out, you know, make sure that you're connected before you start driving. Um, and that's one of the best things about, you know, all the lifts that we actually use besides the deadlift is that it's just another coaching opportunity and you'll see the same issues that they have on the water present themselves in the lift. Yeah, and it's awesome because it's not it's not an abstract thing. You know, suspension when the boat's going quickly, whatever, it's a little bit hard for athletes to get the grasp of sometimes. But on the deadlift, you've got take the click out of the bar. You've got you've got auditory feedback for something that we don't usually have in rowing. Uh, so I, I think that's that's a great thing to highlight attention to for athletes. Yeah, and one one other thing that you just reminded me both of is um in addition to taking the the slack out of the bar, the click, um, really posting up. Uh, from the bar. So what I mean by that is, you know, a common thing that we see in the rowing stroke is um, we'll, we'll, we'll see an athlete, their shoulders will start creeping up towards their ears. So we really want them to post up off the bar, meaning they're, they're anti-shrugging. They're using the, the lat um, and packing the shoulder down, retracting the, the shoulders. And so they've got that nice connection. The, the lat is, um, is bringing that connection to the opposite glutes. Now we have this total, total body connection from the, the hands gripping the bar into the lat, into the glutes, all the way down the hamstring, into the feet, into the floor. Yeah, and actually a little bit of a personal story there for me. Um, so I've been, I've been training for strongman powerlifting for four years or so now. Um, and I stalled out really hard on the deadlift. Um, I think with, with the benefit of all my rowing training and stuff, my back was naturally pretty strong. Um, and so I was able to jump pretty quickly up into the mid 400s. Uh, but it, I stalled out at 485, which is just shy of five plates uh, for fully two years. Um, and what ended up fixing it for me was basically just going back to ground zero and relaying all of my deadlift training 
um, with that depressed scapula position or the shoulders back and down. One of the cues I'll use here is shoulders in the back pocket. Um, and the funny thing for me is that that's how I teach all of my athletes to deadlift is with that proud chest, not too much extension at the thoracic spine. You don't want to be, you know, um, really super arched, uh, but that neutral spine with the shoulders in the back pocket, that's how I teach my athletes to deadlift. And yet that was not how I was deadlifting. Uh, so as soon as I went back and basically just re just committed to redoing all of my training with that, um, January ish finally hit, um, a pretty easy 495 with room to spare. Um, I haven't taken the deadlift max since then with everything else going on, but I'm excited to hear once the season wraps up a little bit of a humble brag there too. Very nice, man. Congrats. <laughs> Thanks. It was, it was a long road, so I was pretty happy about it, but also frustrated with just banging my head into a wall for stuff that it was super frustrating. I already knew it. I just wasn't doing it myself. Nice. Yeah. Sometimes we need our own coaches, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I like I like teaching, you know, athletes how to fill the hang, right? And what you guys just described is that's what I would describe. Like feel the hang, hang from the lats. Um, a lot of times if you talk to your athletes, especially as they're learning and actually even, even some of the college kids that I've talked to when they suspend and, and really hang on the oar, the first place they feel is their back. And that's, that's a bad thing. <laughs> that's something we want to really avoid. So even the, if, the, the lower back. Yeah. 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 So if we can, if we can find a way on land to teach them how to hang from the lats and, um, benefit the, or, uh, find the tension there. That's going to go a long way, keeping them safe and increasing their performance. And then the deadlift too provides a, a very real uh, simulation for shooting the slide too. Um, that was part of my problem as well is that I wasn't generating enough uh, torso tightness and keeping my lats and shoulders packed down. So as soon as I would apply pressure to the feet, my hips would shoot up, my back would round, and then the, I would push the bar out in front of me, uh, which make it very, very difficult to lock out weights. Um, there's nothing more frustrating than missing a deadlift at like the mid thigh, you know, you essentially have like three more inches just to lock out. Um, but because I wasn't generating enough torso tightness, keeping my chest up, uh, through the lift, I was basically doing the exact same thing as you see in the rowing stroke. When you get the oar in the water jammed down at the feet and then because you don't have enough torso tightness, you shoot your slide. Yeah, that's. That's a great point, Will. Just reemphasizing again the importance of you know proximal stability for distal athleticism there, and being nice. able to transfer you know force through the trunk. You want to uh, explain a little bit about what those terms mean for our audience, because that's because that's a really good thing with some sciencey jargon into it is proximal proximal stability for distal athleticism, right? Yeah. So. Um, you know, if anybody's interested in reading more about it, definitely check out uh, Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance by Dr. Stuart McGill. Um, he goes into it in depth uh, in that book. Um, and that one's specifically geared towards athletes and coaches. Uh, but in a nutshell, what you're talking about is uh, the area of the body, the torso, the trunk. So everything from the shoulders uh, between the hips, uh, that area is designed uh, and they found this out through the laboratory testing and stuff is to prevent motion. So by stiffening and by stiffening, we're not thinking, you know, Frankenstein walking, you know, super stiff. We're talking about stiffening or tensing the, the musculature. We're able to actually generate more force, power and velocity at the shoulders and hips, right? So 
we're talking about generating more force through the legs and then that whip fulcruming through the torso and then adding in the arms in the second half of the rowing stroke. So to do that, we need to kind of reflexively stabilize through the trunk during the drive. So we're able to generate uh, and tap into that elastic energy um, from, from the body. Thanks again for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight reel and we'll go on to listen to the full episodes available for free on Row Perfect UK's SoundCloud, iTunes, or YouTube channel. Please drop us a comment or join us on the Roundtable Facebook group to provide feedback or discuss any questions you have about strength training for rowing.